The Raw Rugby Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Raw Rugby Podcast, powered by ASICS. I'm Brett McKay. The dramatic third weekend of the Rugby World Cup 2023 is done, and the knockout stage looms large for some, but not all, of the expected teams. Your place for the biggest and best Rugby World Cup discussion is the raw.com.au, Australia's biggest sporting debate. Uh, absolutely fantastic to have Owen Jones uh, back on the pod last week. Uh, timely and wonderful insight into the Welsh build-up to what was a crucial game in Lyon on Sunday night, local time, Monday morning Australian. And we did indeed exchange messages late in that game and after full time. Um, and I'd like to say it was stressful, but uh, it was kind of done by then. So there really wasn't. There's only disappointment rather than rather than stress at the time that we swapped the messages. But joining me this and every week, the man who spent the weekend navigating pencil art, French rail services, Bill Tong, and a pub full of Australian Welsh fans back in the US, Harry Jones. Hello, mate. How are you? How's the, how's how's the jet it? lag? How's it, Brent? No, I'm fine. As you, as you know, I don't believe in jet lag. I don't believe in sleep. I, I only believe in rugby, as Rian Logan Rugby. Yes. Actually, if you're Rossi, you take out the sound and you just go, Rabi. It just, it just avoids the G. Um, no, it's been wonderful. I, I, before the tournament, I said, I wondered, you know, the French are aroused, but are they hard enough? Now I wonder, do they have enough balls? I mean, every matchup in that, we have to wait for about 45 seconds in lineouts. Sometimes the ball comes trickling on during the play and someone like a medic ran on at Lyon and rescued the ball was right under yeah. Carter Gordon's feet. Um, there's something very wrong with their, um, their ball calibration as well as it, their beer yes. and food. Calibration. They have no idea how many ball, food and beer they need for Australian crowd, South and Australian crowds. I mean, just whatever you think it is, multiply by 50. Um, yeah. but it's, it's been wonderful. I, you know, the pools have been kind of strange. Pool A was decided in the first two hours. Uh, pool B actually is turning into a very strange Scottish uh, love triangle with Ireland and South Africa where anything could happen. But strangely enough, the losers from the big match are the most secure and the winners <laughs> Ireland possibly could boot it up by their yes. healthy cousins. Pool C, as we know, was um, surrendered by Eddie's team. The Wallabies, uh, Wallabies in Lyon just surrendered abjectly to uh, Fiji and uh, and then Pool D is uh, England's pool, and then you have spelling out. So it's it's yeah. all it's all very strange from pool to pool. Um, but no, it's it's been uh, that that was the weekend, a cataclysmic weekend. And as you know, I was I was, was at several of those matches, but the one in in Paris was the one where Rory uh, Rory McIlroy was there before. Um, all the stars were out. As I told you, John the intercepted was Yeah, uh, Burger was was. House- getting in position to uh, from a pod of biltong throwers, and they had a spiraled biltong on the way to him, and Jean de Villiers, who was being made up by a cosmetologist, reached out a paw, and the intercept king took it. So everything was going on in Paris, and I, 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 it's hard to say that I loved a match in which the box lost, but I loved this match because it had everything yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to see in rugby, and without being full of line breaks, there were only two tries scored, um, but it was just a proper test match that you yeah. thought would belong in a final. And I think a lot of these matches in the pools have actually been played like knockout matches. Yeah, absolutely. They, they definitely have. And, and that was one of them. It had 
it had all the hallmarks of knockout rugby and even at you know 5 a.m like it was for me it was just a game where you just you were, i was on edge i was on the edge of my seat because thinking what is going to happen next it was just an incredible game of rugby and it was absolutely worth setting the alarm for um was absolutely brilliant uh i was powered by asics that morning i must say and the raw does have in place a wonderful partnership with asics the official performance apparel and footwear supplier for the wallabies and well what's left of the wallabies Rugby World Cup playing and training ensemble is available to purchase in store and online at asics.com.au now. Um, Flo, keep this running, mate. Hit me with a hero from the weekend, or perhaps you've done that already with Jean de Villiers' intercept capability still. Uh, okay, hero would be um, hero would probably be James Ryan and uh, Ronan, Ronan Kelleher, who had three lineouts stolen. So lineout thrower yep. and line-out caller, you never know who to actually ding. Three line-outs stolen, uh, not thrown away, stolen. So I want to make sure that's clear for the, uh, my Irish friends. They were stolen. So uh, don't don't say it's easy to fix those. And then they threw not straight because they were scared of the steal. Uh, yes. Because they had three jumpers up. And somehow in the middle of a match, a white-hot, crazy match, they were able to fix that. That is one of the hardest things in sport to do is when you are not making the three-foot putt, when you're something wrong with your backswing, as yep. certainly Nick Falder pointed out, all of us, you know, decent, big, strapping guys can hit a ball really far and hit a wonderful shot in our round, just the same as the pros. What makes the pros the pros? They can fix their swing in the middle of the swing. They can change yes. their uh, their game in the middle of a round, and they can score six when they don't have their proper swing. So Ronan and James Ryan, you're the heroes. I want to make sure that Ireland always knows that we respect them, that we love them, that there was a great win. The box just have things they can fix easier on uh, yeah. an 8-13 than Ireland has to fix. So the lineup that can be stolen can always be stolen again. Uh, yes. and the other thing is it's always in your mind as a hooker. The other thing I would say on that match that was the heroes was Ben O'Keefe, the referee. I'll say his name. Great match. Really. Had a great game, yes. Every, every decision that he did make that was 50-50, you understood the other 50. Like, you get yeah. it. Like, at the end of the game, I totally see his thinking process. I know why he went from the left side to the right side. Had he stayed the left side, he would have seen the ball was available. Probably the game is different. But then it's a draw because Monty LeBuck would miss the kick. But, um, <laughs> but I don't know if you could ever say that there was a better way, a match like that because it was the kind of match that's so difficult to referee. So in my mind, you're looking at that's really the grand final and that's the referee that should do the grand final. A rematch with the same referee, let's go. That would be good, yeah. He's, his explanations, Ben O'Keefe, and Wayne Barnes in Wales, Australia was the same. The, the explanations were clear. It was, it was exact. There was no uncertainty about what they were explaining. This is the decision I've made for this reason, and it's against you. Yeah, ex except that Barnes, he was always talking to the same guy. Uh, Dave, uh, you went on the side. Uh, Dave, Tom went on the side. Yeah. Uh, Dave, uh, Rob, yeah. I mean, it was just over and over it was 12 seconds into the game yeah where and it was uh, and it was gareth davis for wales yes please gareth back at <laughs> <me>, gareth <laughs> 12 seconds the first penalty was conceded for uh dave Parecki, the captain going in the side completely avoidable penalty you know self-enforced error and then i think there were three ben donaldson errors post that and you just i mean even though the score was okay i just realized that my earlier i, I was on a live show for south african radio and they said, what's your one bet on the, the weekend? I think it was on Friday. And I said, bet the house on Wales. I'm sorry, but that's what I said. Because 
I said, I would have to change every rock rugby doctrine that I hold dear if I'm picking the Wallabies. It's a hope and a prayer. And it's a prayer to some ancient God I'm not aware of because I don't know how you put Ben Thompson <laughs> up against Dan Bigger and then it turned out to be uh, Gareth Anscombe and expect a good outcome in a game like that. It was never on. Yeah. No, it's a good point. It's a good point. I've got a good zero for you, mate. Uh, my, yeah, yeah. My um, Wednesday last week, South Africa put their their team out to play Ireland in Paris, and they, of course, named this time deliberately on purpose a 7-1 bench. Now, of course, we remember the last time they played a 7-1 bench against New Zealand in the warm-up game, it was a late change. It was a, It happened an hour before the game. So that was an accident. This time it was calculated. It was deliberate. They named a 7-1 bench. So I did a quote tweet of that South African team, and I said words to the effect of, this is outrageous for reasons that I can't readily think of, and it's something about the spirit of the game. And for two and a half days, mate, and 121,000 views later, so many South African fans do not do sarcasm at all. And so many of your country people, my, my friend, and actually more than a few Irish fans, read, read that few lines way too literally and that kept me amused for many many days mate so uh so the zeros for you it also won you you a few followers now (laughs) it did win me more than a few followers uh and that's a little something that we'll address in in maybe a future a future episode but mate let's get on to this week's guest uh, a former wallaby in his own right a prolific wordsmith uh, such that I'm quite sure in a one-on-one conversation, he and Harry would both struggle to get a word in. I'll put on my bandana. The Raw Rugby Podcast. To the pod's new studio somewhere in regional France, we welcome Faris Dabu onto the Raw Rugby Podcast, former Wallaby Lock, Sydney Morning Herald columnist and acclaimed author, Peter Fitzsimons. Peter, thanks for tuning in to us. Great to have you on. Thanks for having me. I'm having a lovely time. You are having a lovely time. I'm reading that in your columns. How has your, your World Cup been so far? Look, I've enjoyed being in France. I lived here for four years back in the back in the 1980s. And, you know, I've been catching up with old friends and seeing people I used to play rugby with and against, and I love all that. And I was sort of excited. I went to the Wallaby training early on, you know, mm. my first Wallaby training to attend in about 20 years. And I was impressed. It seemed very sophisticated. They had two drones in the sky. They had at least, quite seriously, it shocks me how how professional, how sophisticated it is. And there was two drones in the sky, uh, two sort of set up tables at one end with three guys behind computers. Yeah. If there were 30 wallabies out on the field, there were at least 30 staff in terms of yes. coaches and physios and conditioners and God knows what. I mean, it was a... A multi-million dollar operation and, Mm. you know, Eddie was in charge and I thought, well, you know, Eddie's got a track record, second to none. And I like Eddie. And I, you know, when they, when they appointed Eddie, I, I, I I can't remember exactly what I wrote, but it was something very positive saying, Mm. okay, well, this is a no brainer. This guy's the Messiah of world rugby coaching. He's had success with the Wallabies, the Springboks, Japan, England. Who who gets close Mm. to that resume? You know, he's been there for one winning final with South Africa as assistant coach. He's been two, made it to the final twice with Australia and England. 
and he got Japan to beat South Africa. I mean, mm. and he was available. It was a no-brainer to appoint him. And we all knew there'd be ugliness. There'd be assistant coaches <laughs> screaming for the exits. Yeah. There'd be shattered players of great repute who'd been shown the door. There'd be savagery with the press. We all knew there'd be ugly things happening. But don't panic. There'll be beautiful times ahead when we start to win. And mm. it just hasn't happened. It just yeah. has not happened. It hasn't still, even been close. No, no, we're still we're still waiting, aren't we? We we start the same sort of place every every week. And that's simply to ask you what stood out for you on the weekend. What what did you see that you just went, whoa, what what have I just witnessed? What stood out? I'll, I'll go back to the Fiji game just for a moment. I've mm. described how sophisticated the training was, how professional it was, how the, the world of rugby that I came from, you know, had nothing to do with that. We used to just run into each other for a couple of hours, do some drills and go home. And, you know, that was good. You, had, what you, I used, saw you, used, there, to get, you used to get fat envelopes though, didn't you, Peter? In France? Never. <laughs> I tell you what, I worked, I worked like stink as an assistant d'anglais au lycée cabiniste. Um, but I, what stood out, what stood out to me, was after witnessing that sophistication, and then I go and see them play against Fiji. Twice the ball goes up, the up and under, what the French call in chandelle, goes up, and there's our guys are under it, and nobody called out, mm. mine, you know, like. The, the thing I learnt in the under-12s was when the ball goes up and you're near somebody and you're a chance of catching it, somebody's got to make the call. Mine. Mm. Nobody called. The ball went down. And in the first time, Fiji regathered and scored. Next thing that stood out against Fiji was in the final half, the second half, there must have – you guys have probably got the stats. But on six or seven occasions – the Wallabies take the ball into the ruck. They get tackled. They hit the ruck. They're pressing the, the, the Fijian line. We're waiting for the ball to come out. Referee. Penalty against the Wallabies. Yeah. Six yeah. or seven times. And nobody on the field said, you, Brett, Harry, hear me and hear me well, you bastards. If you go over the top like I'm, t- I'm telling you, I'm yeah. telling you, I will make damn sure you bastards are never selected again. Get this right. This is a test match. Okay? We are playing for our life. There was nothing like mm. along those lines. I mean, I don't know what the conversation was, but what I know is it just kept happening again yeah. and again and again. Final thing for Fiji before I finish my rant <laughs> is, that, is that the final thing against Fiji is that within a minute to go, we were down by seven points. Now, I repeat. I am no expert on modern rugby. I don't I don't understand it. I don't understand the sophistication. But I certainly know the values and I know the basics. And the basics that I know are that with a minute to go and you're down by seven points, you have one hope, one hope of doing it. And that is you've got to cold the ball, you've got to mm. press towards their line, you've got to keep going. If you kick it away, you blow... 30 seconds at least, and you give them the ball, you probably blow a minute. Anyway, mm. with two minutes to go, there must have been three kicks from us to them. But with they... a one minute to go, we kicked. They've yeah. got the ball. You know, okay, so that stood out for me, Fiji. Against 
Wales. I got there, I guess, with an hour to go, maybe 45 minutes to go. And they were already out on the, the Welsh team were already out on the field. And you looked up to my, to my right, the Welsh team's up there, and these guys have got their game faces on. These guys are serious. These guys are playing as if they're playing in the World Cup, and it's dependent on winning to get to the quarterfinal. I mean, they're that serious. It looks like death. And they're all, they're all doing these particular drills, and there's no laughing and no joking. They're serious. And our guys, who came out just in front of me, I'm not saying they were laughing or joking at all. But they ambled out, you know. They they, mm. they came out, and you know they were, they were sort of serious. But each guy did sort of his own thing. And in the, I suppose from the first time I got there to the last guy coming out was twenty minutes. So there was no, you know, there was no rhythm. There was no direct purpose. I couldn't see mm. any. And what I also saw that troubled me at the time, but I sort of pushed it away, was. A couple of guys playing. I don't know what the modern version of rock paper is. Okay, is uh, paper rock? It wasn't that they were playing. They were not playing scissor paper rock, but they were doing something with their hands, which was some kind of a game. I don't know what it was, and they were laughing as they were doing it. And they were not playing. These guys were not mm. playing. But it troubled me that guys, we are about to play for. We're playing for sheep stations here. We're playing yeah. to stay alive. If we lose this game, Australian rugby is in crisis. And you guys, you're not on the field. You're not, so it's not, you know, you, I guess you get a right to some sort of relaxation. And I don't condemn them for that. But I did, I was troubled from this is so important. There's got to be an ambience here of absolute seriousness. Mm-hmm. And then Eddie came out. And again, Eddie's playing for sheep stations. And Eddie supervised, I guess, and he may have been saying to coaches, do this, do that, but he wasn't engaged. And then he wanted yeah. to halfway, and he looks up to where the Welsh are doing it, and I swear, he must have just watched them for 10 minutes. And again, I repeat, I don't understand professional rugby, but right from that moment, I was thinking, this, this, doesn't, look, this doesn't look good. And then so mm. the, the kickoff goes, I think it's... So 11 seconds, we give away a penalty. They score a try. So, you know, you dust yourself off. You go, okay, lucky punch, lucky punch. Okay, they got it 7-0. Nobody panicked yet. Then, to the Wallabies' credit, they held the ball. They squeezed out a couple of penalties. It's 7-6. And we get a penalty, a kickable penalty, to go to 9-7 lead if we kick the kicker. Very easily kickable penalty. Instead of that, the captain, Parecki, and to be fair to him, I admired the spirit. I admired the spirit of, we're not going to take the easy penalty. We want to score a try and nail these bastards and, and get up by dot three, carry one, subtract two, 13-7. <laughs> Instead, he says, all right, kick for the line. They kicked for the line. And I repeat, when I was playing in the Wallabies, I was not a good Wallaby jump. I was not a good line-out player. That was not my thing. So I'm not that. But in the modern day, with the modern rules, You've got to be getting the ball, what, 19 times out of 20, if you know what you're doing, yeah. and you're a professional. You know, on this occasion, I don't know if somebody tripped or what happened, but the ball sailed over the top, and it's caught by, I think it was the, the Welsh back rower. There wasn't a wallaby within two or three no. years of him. And when you're playing kicked it downfield. When your job is to win these lineouts, not 19 times out of 20, 
when you've got a try in the offing, you're about to get across their line, and you don't, the ball goes to the world's guy without anybody within two or three metres. Seriously, Houston, we have a problem. And then the guy kicks it, one of the best kicks, I think it was the back rower that kicked it. But you it was, yeah, Jack, Jack Morgan, yeah. I used to play with Michael Walker, and I reckon he could kick the ball 70 metres. You know, you'd be absolutely exhausted. Swing it to Michael Walker, and he'd kick it downfield. You beauty, we, we, we drop We're good to downfield go. to the line. In this case, and this guy kicks it so long, it must have been a, at least a 50-20. It felt like it, it looked like a 10, 10, yeah. 10 30 or something. I don't know, but it was a long kick. It was huge. And it was a big from, kick. From losing that line out, we are suddenly defending our line. And, and so I'm just about done. If in the <laughs> second half, in the, as the second half continued, what were there, six or seven scrum penalties? You know, yeah. and the, the scrum collapses. And again, I never understood scrums. I never liked scrums. I don't understand the dynamics of scrums, but I know this, that if you are continuing to give away scrum penalties, something's got to happen. Somebody's got to pull somebody in line. Somebody's got to be pulled from the field and replaced by somebody. But but to give away that many penalties when the sheep station's on the line is unacceptable. And I don't say that the Wallabies were not trying. I've seen a fair bit of commentary saying they gave up. They did not give up. They kept going hard. They yeah. kept going hard, but there was no cohesion. Which brings us, oddly enough, to Alan Jones. Now, about last year, I was attacked. I was not attacked, but I was, well, a bit by the Australian, for the Australian newspaper for saying that I'd, I'd had to go at Alan Jones 48 times in the previous year, to which I replied, everybody needs four weeks off. You can't just expect me to do this 52 weeks a year. I meant every word. But, but... But Alan Jones, in the time that I had him, even though he let me off at the next station as a Wallaby coach, he was a great coach. And I, I was describing it to New Zealand Radio this morning that a great coach like, like Alan Jones, like Bob Dwyer, like Eddie Jones back in the day, it's like if you threw 15 nails onto a table, the great coach is the magnet underneath that doesn't have each magnet yes. pointing in exactly the same direction, but they're part of a cohesive pattern. And mm. that the hallmark, the hallmark of Eddie Jones's coaching has been ruthless professionalism. They're all pointing in part of the Eddie Jones pattern. They all know what each is doing. They're superbly fit. They're highly skilled. They make very few errors. Now, that's mm. how he's risen to, to being such a successful million-dollar-a-year coach. And over 20 years. And as we're leading into these games, I just never saw that. There was never that. Yeah. There were, against Georgia, to be fair, they, they looked pretty good, but it was Georgia. You know, they, they, they were a strong team, but they weren't world-class particularly. But I just kept thinking, well, we must be about to see it. We must be about to see it. And the truth of those games against Fiji and Wales is, there was just no cohesion whatsoever. There are some mm. very good players there, some seriously strong players. And I think it was my colleague, Ian Payton. Yeah, it was Ian Payton in the Sydney Morning Herald who noted of our fabulous winger, Marika Korobeti, that I think, you know, with the ball in hand, his stats were nine metres. So you've got yeah. the world's most, one of the world's most devastating wingers. And... We had a system of play where he got the ball into his hands and he ran 
nine metres, one mm. metre every 10 minutes, including injury time. Now, mm. that's not an Eddie Jones team. And, and a team where the ball goes up and nobody shouts out mine, that's not an Eddie Jones team. A team where you've got a minute to go and they kick it uselessly to the opponents, that's not an Eddie Jones team. And he is a brilliant, brilliant coach. He's got a track record second to none. But it just hasn't worked. No. It just it's not been there. Yeah. It's been it's been really interesting to observe from afar. I can imagine it's been very interesting to observe from up close. Harry, you have seen it up close. You did see South African Ireland on the weekend. I'm guessing that's what stood out to you because that was a brilliant game of rugby. Yeah, I don't know. So it was all over France. I've been in Nantes, Bordeaux, Marseille, Nice, Lyon. Uh what stood out for me actually off the field was I don't see anyone in France that looks like they can play rugby. You know, you go to mm-hmm. Cardiff and you walk around and everyone looks like Jack Morgan. You go to uh, England, <laughs> there's a lot of tall fellows like Dave Ribbons looking fellows. You go to South Africa and everyone looks like a prop that swallowed a prop. You, you're in France, you're like, well, who plays rugby here? Because no one looks like they're uh, yeah. lifted a weight. They seem somewhat bored by the action on the field and just keep singing songs and banging uh, drums and trombones. But it's still just got a magic about it being uh, being over there, and I, I really enjoyed the up close and personal. To Peter's point, um, our, our shy guest, our, our reticent guest, um, you know, like you look at you look at on the field, and I love like he says watching pre-game drills. I love to see the differences between how the Ireland and South African prepare. And I, we, we had Eddie on the pod, and I said, "Is your team too quiet?" Yeah, Roy Fisher. There's no one yelling. There's no one shouting. When I look at the Irish team, everyone knows Johnny Sexton is running the show and Conor Murray late. Everyone knows in the force, James Ryan, the quiet man, is uh, giving you directional advice. And then Peter, I'm telling you how to fuck up the opposition. In the box, they are literally eating biltong in the pre-game drill. He's wearing a short that he's banging, drop goes over, and they are dancing. It's like a loose it's, – it's intense. But it's loose and happy. Ireland and South Africa are happy camps. Everyone knows what they're yeah. doing, what the situation is, the mission is. New Zealand has gone completely quiet, right? So we don't know. They're just gone. They're just gone hiding into hiding. Yeah. And then the French are uh, obviously uh, a machine. Australia, when I was there at the match, it looked like everyone was looking at someone else and wondering who wasn't there. You mm-hmm. have Toa, Cooper, Cooper with the big voices in the winds of the spring box. Uh, a year ago, now it just seems like, well, who is it? Are you captain? Am I captain? Who is it? Yeah, uh, who's captain this week? And furthermore, it doesn't seem like a happy camp. I said Australia may not win the World Cup this year, but they will win the drama stage because yeah. you know, every single time Eddie Jones was on screen, the French were booing, um, all the neutrals were booing. He had lost yeah. the charm stakes that Eddie does so well. Eddie has always been a guy who knew how to be liked, he could win the boardroom. And he could tell you and sell you, you know, a, a really good story like the Hugh Jackman character in The Music Man. And in the end, you know, like my daughter said when we saw that play, she said, I liked it because it was true. I go, what, you, what was true about it? He, she said, we want the right kind of lies. So Eddie could always <laughs> tell you the right kind of lies. Like, we've got this, uh, like, believe me. And when you have a generation gap between him and the players, and you make that generation gap larger by having only young guys, mm. you really have to get their belief yeah, and all of these did not believe they were going to win that match. Yeah, yeah, they never believed it. Peter, you've so you have you have seen you've seen a lot this 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 World Cup. You've seen 
how Australia's gone. You've got you've, you've you've written some really good thoughts on that. What's the way forward here now? You just talked about light at the end of the tunnel, yep. and you've you've written in this in the Herald uh, this week. There is light at the end of the tunnel. Well, that's What's actually got to happen from here. I, I was going to say that there's a brilliant piece in the Herald on this very subject. As a matter of fact, I wrote it. And <laughs> to to refer to Harry's point of the lack of noise, and you you mentioned the Irish team, and that's absolutely my impression. And that game between Ireland and South Africa, how strong was that? Mm. I mean, that was just rugby at its best with magnificent athletes, totally very few penalties, very few breakdowns. They just kept going at each other. So what we need, my reference points, and I'm aware that I'm 62 now, and my reference points as the years go by, you know, they're getting, I'm getting long in the tooth to be talking about what happened in the 80s and 90s. Nevertheless, I wrote the biographies of Nick Farr-Jones and John Eels. I sort of get what goes into the makeup of successful Wallaby World Cup winning captains. And you need, you need somebody that, exactly as Harry said, who behind the line is laying down the law and saying what needs to happen in a noisy, even a great... I mean, Far Jones said to me once, I think it was my second test match, and I dropped the ball. He's my closest friend. And he said to me, Fitz, this is a f test match. You know, like there's a standard, there's a standard that yeah. needs to be got to, and it ain't good enough. To, and it, you know, to make what's worse is making the same mistake over and over. So you need somebody yappy and that is installed, not there on a week by week basis. I mean, I've got no clue what that was about. But but I think it was uh, Tate McDermott who was asked, who was the vice captain, said, "Are you well without Skelton? Will you be captain?" He said, "I don't know." Yeah. I mean, yeah. what? Th that was that was revealing, wasn't it? That, that yeah. you have six captains in eight tests, and like uh, I say, there's mm. no clarity of message. Yeah, and I may be steering towards Tate McDermott because he's got a bad haircut just like Far Jones used to have. And, you know, he, he – he, but he looks like that. I don't know him personally, you know, at all. But he he's that kind of guy. And I was watching very closely as they came off. I happened to be seated just to the left of where, of where the uh, players were coming on and off. And I was looking at – I wanted to see guys that were grieving – that, you know, this really hit hard. Yeah. And I thought, I mean, in terms of guys that were just absolutely desolate, I would say Kellaway and Tate McDermott were right up there, as was Angus Bell. And Angus Bell's another one. I mean, in that Fiji game, he had a monster game. You know, he yeah. just kept taking the ball straight into them. So I'd look for a captain. I would look for... I've always said that the best administered sport in Australia is the AFL because if you think of every sport as a pyramid, the AFL's approach for decades has been we will put our resources into the base of the pyramid, it will grow wider, and the wider it goes, the bigger the peak goes, looks after itself. I think the Wallabies for 25 years since professionalism came in, more and more money's gone into the peak and you just stack brick on brick on brick, and what we've just seen is all those bricks have mm. fallen over, and the base, this is a pretty strained metaphor, or simile, one of those, um, but it's just there's too much resources going into the peak, and there's not enough done into developing the base. People have said that, and this is a fair point, and I think Eddie was the one that said we can't have five 
super rugby teams. We need three rug, super rugby teams. So you've got the best players. You lift the standard. You beat New Zealand. You beat South Africa. You beat Argentina. You know, you 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 lift the standard because we haven't got enough brilliant players to go around. I think that's probably right, but it's politically, as as yeah. Bill Pulver found out, politically extremely it's difficult. Awfully dangerous, yeah. Look, I'm conscious of your time, Peter, and I know you've, we've, got to, we've got to let you go in a minute. Before we do that, of the other teams that you've seen this World Cup, who's stood out for you? Who do you like after three weekends of, of some pretty good action? I love France, I love Ireland, and I don't love South Africa, but I admire South Africa. <laughs> no, but I'd love to see, I would love to, and I'd love to see, our, well, also my friend here has mentioned Fiji, they, they, and that's fair. They were Fiji. I, I interviewed that fellow, Simon. Uh, Raul Louis, yeah. Yep. Yeah, what a, what a great guy. And we see there's the other example. You know, I, I interviewed him for the Herald. And Simon was saying, I think it was July 1st, he picks his squad and they've got the first day, they're leading into the World Cup. He says, get into the bus at 3 a.m. Why are we getting, get into the bus. He puts them on a bus. He puts them on a ferry. He puts them on another bus. He puts them on another ferry. They arrive in a Fijian village. Where are we sleeping? <laughs> the emergency storm shelter. What? Where are our beds? Well, those things on the floor, their mattresses, that's where you're sleeping. And that's the way they live for, you know, for a week, 10 days with makeshift gyms. I mean, that's the glory of rugby. And yeah. so these guys, with that lack of resources, I don't know if they flew business class to, to, to France, but I'd be surprised. Very limited resources. But, and, and part of those resources, to be fair, came from Australia. I think the yes. Australian Rugby Union, you know, was generous enough to give the money to support Pacific Rugby. But that's the way they played. So let's go with those four teams. Fiji, yeah. what a romantic win that would be. France, they've been in three World Cup finals. They deserve, they, they play magnificent rugby. They just play, you know, out of their tree. And I love France anyway. I'd love to see them. Ireland. What a, just the character of those guys. I wrote a book to give myself a plug called The Catalpa Rescue. And it's about, it's the second best story in the history of the world after the Batavia shipwreck. But it, but it was about basically the Irish, Irish liberating themselves from England. And I thought to myself, in my absolute ignorance, I thought, well, there must be 60 million Irish, aren't there? You know, this will go well as it goes overseas. I think there's only four or five million of them in Ireland. And yet they produce a team like that. Yeah. You know, just terrific. And South Africa, when Japan beat South Africa in 2015, you know, that was terrific. And I thought it was partly the magnificence of Japan and it may well have been South Africa drifting away. Well, they haven't drifted away. You know, they're, they're a fabulous rugby team. So the winners will come from those four. Won't, Fiji won't, you know, Fiji, they're a romantic pick, but it'll be one of those <laughs> three, France, South Africa or Ireland. But, but the thing about it too so is... The All Blacks out of it, Peter. They gone. The All Blacks. Oh, funny you should say that. I just, yeah, I, I, they didn't even pop into my head, and that's and that's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's the truth. It is the truth because yeah. you know, they were dusted by South Africa, absolutely dusted by South Africa. France was all over them, but the people that deserve the most accolades for this World Cup so far are the French crowds. You know, yeah. I've been to five matches, six matches. Every one of them has been sold out or near, just about sold out, and yep. most of the people there, you know, even in game, well, the French, they are, they are turning up in force. They have a terrific spirit, and for me, just as I leave you, the emblematic moment of this 
tournament so far was that opening match between France and New Zealand. They sing La Marseillaise, the French and the French, you know, there's 80,000 people there screaming out and singing La Marseillaise and then it's time for the Harker. And it's suddenly, silence, c'est le silence, il y a personne qui parle. And it was so silent. And when they started the haka, you could hear the cries. And it was just something magnificent about this nation from the South Pacific that with a, with a, with a cry that was coming from 50 yards and 1,000 years ago, ringing around a stadium filled with 80,000 people, that treated it with elaborate respect. And France has put on a magnificent World Cup, with one exception. I don't know. Harry, were you at the Lyon game? Yes. Did you have trouble getting out of the stadium? Yeah, I was there. It was hopeless. It was yeah. it was a magnificent stadium. Come the time oh, to go, yeah. 40 minutes before we could get out through the security. They were letting us go in waves, but that was hopeless. But, look, by and large, France has put on a magnificent World Cup. Thank you for having me. I've had a lovely time. Yeah. yeah, thank you. We've endured a few technical issues along the way, but we appreciate your time. Um, thanks, thanks so much, and we'll uh, we look forward to. We'd love to have a chat with you again sometime soon. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Peter. Go well. Bye, Harry. Bye. Rugby on the roar. So, Harry, absolutely fantastic to have Peter Fitzsimons on. We we have had to let him go, and we have had a few technical difficulties through that first segment. So, uh, my uh, apologies for it. A little bit out of our control, and unfortunately, um, regional regional French mobile services maybe even worse than the mobile service in the ruins last week, as you as you discovered. Yeah. Uh, as a as a young man, I was uh, I think I was provincial champion in a game. You know, just a minute we had to speak for one minute without hesitation, irrelevance, or um, repetition. I think uh, Fitz might have me, but it might be just an hour that he could play and, and beat me on. So, you know, <laughs> us were together. <laughs> we would just have to get, you know, like more and more people together so we could have someone to talk to. You genuinely didn't get a word in the first 15 minutes there. I like, I like, I like Fitz's approach. I like the tone. I think it's not appropriate on a day like this, a week like this, for anyone to do weaselly, words to start changing their tune come on guys australia you will get the leadership you deserve by being really clear about what you don't accept and that's where everything starts in life yes. when someone and is they... the plot when they used to be good but they're not good anymore because you can look from 2020 on with england and now in australia eddie is repeating the same tropes he doesn't understand why he loses but you have to say why did you lose that game from england you know england lost to south africa he actually says the wrong thing uh, the game has yes. passed him by he would be excellent in many positions. We actually said on, on in print, so you can check it, so we have credibility, that he might be a good smash and grabber, but terrible for the 2024 to 2028 uh, gig. But if you could find a rationale to bring Eddie in, it would be just for the tournament. Then they mm -hmm. flipped it around, almost opposite, saying, actually, we're going to toss this tournament that you're paying $20,000 to go see, but it's all about the next one. That was incredibly difficult to, uh, to rationalize when you do psychology and profile of Eddie. You know, I, I in my in my real gig, I literally do due diligence on CEOs and C-suite hires when you're acquiring companies. All the seeds were there that someone needed a break. Yeah. Eddie needed to go away to the Himalayas and walk around like Brad Pitt in seven years in Tibet and like gather strange thoughts and, and refresh, maybe go to Hokkaido and you know, chat with the snow monkeys. But 
He didn't need to be thrust right back into a, a World Cup tournament planning. Mm-hmm. Warren Gatlin apparently was okay for that. You know, he was quiet. He said nothing. Yeah. He took his players, you know, to tough places, and then he gave them a very simple template. There was nothing in the Welsh victory that was that exotic. And no, to your point, no. all season long you've been saying there's space on the outside. So I, the one bad ticket I had was for the Wales-Australia game because it was sold out so quickly. Um, the Welsh were there in force. So I was up pretty high, and I could look at the uh, backline configuration. Mate! Oh, my God, there was so much space. I was thinking yeah. all you got to do every time is get it to Lewis Samet, and he's going to run rings around. You know, it could have been 80. No. It, yeah, it was yeah. Open. And Peter Peter mentioned there that, you know, Marika Corobete runs for nine metres for the game. I think he only carried three or four times. And you look at how often Lewis Samet and how often Josh Adams carried and how often – Anscombe mostly played wide to those guys because there was space, and look at how little the, the, the Australia yes. played to their wingers. The, we've been talking about disconnect between the halves and midfield all year, but this disconnect continued. It did the ball didn't get past the twelve and thirteen channel, it did not, and so that's when you do see Mark Noingenitawazi to his absolute credit popping up in midfield and being that inside runner. He was actually presenting himself as an option, which is what you want to see in a in a wing of these days. But oh so there is so many questions coming out of it. And and you're right, there's there's been a bit of rewriting of history in the last week or so. There's been a lot of change narratives. And I think at this point in time, particularly as as Peter says, as Jim Tucker said on um uh, in in his in the instant reaction post the Wales game people have saved up so much money to get to go to France and they've had a great time, you know, as I'm sure you and we'll get to the event on Sunday. You found out firsthand, people are having a great time in France, but they didn't go all the way to France to watch a really ordinary Australian side. They could have seen that at home here this year. We have seen that at home this year. And so it has been really interesting to see the narrative changes and, the swallowing of those narrative changes over the last few days. It's illustrative, I think I would even say. Yeah, and I, I, it's hard to encapsulate. I've been trying to think about it, the feeling that um, that was there in the stadium as people left 25 minutes, 20 minutes. You, you heard discussion saying, is it time to go now? And one would turn to another, two Aussies, and then we kind of go, Let's wait for two more minutes just to make sure, and then there'll be a, a, yeah. an up and under to nowhere. There'd be a kick out on the full, or there'd be a double error, or there'd be, you know. And so then people say, okay, it's time now. And then you'd see four or five yeah. while it'd be up and go. And they were getting grief on the way out. They were getting jeered. Uh, look, that's okay. That's sport. But my point is this. I don't think my, the, my experience with Australians is they're very pragmatic people, and they understand losses. Um, if you're in sport as a fan, you're gonna you're gonna have some tough losses. What they don't understand and what they don't accept, and I think um, they're a smart uh, they're a smart sporting crowd is the bullshit. The bullshit sounds like this. Well, there were injuries. Okay, come on, guys. There's always injuries in a World Cup. There was also uh, also there was twice as many injuries last year. We we were young. That was self imposed. There was a 75 cap guy with a seven. 35% winning percentage in the World Cup, a 63% winning percentage disproportionately against the All Blacks and Springboks. That's a hell of a winning percentage. Uh, I think his name was Quay Cooper. I think it rhymes with Hooper. 
you had the wrong Hooper, the wrong Arnold, and you had people out there that were looked clueless. They didn't have enough fire. Now, there are some people that were exceptions, but even the people who I think are fiery players for their clubs, they didn't seem very fired up for this particular Camp Wallaby. What was that? And now I get into psychology. The physics of rugby are clear and they're difficult. I was, and they're I was hoping we'd get here. But I mean, there's something about a happy camp that wants to play hard. All the Springboks know how Rossi sees them, how Jacques sees them. They're very colloquial. They hug each other. They tackle each other. They're literally on the field. You can tell that they have good vibes. They know each other's sisters, aunts, uncles, life, tragedy, ups, downs. They, they are a tight family. The Irish group may be even closer. Everyone really knows each other. They trust each other. There's a credibility. John Eels earlier this year said to us, we said, what makes you win a World Cup? What what rises Value. to that level? And he said, trust. Yeah, You've got to have this group where you are so connected that it just takes one word here and there, and then you know where to go and how to go. I felt like this Wallaby team, being disproportionately younger on purpose for some reason, was even more likely to be looking at each other and not knowing what to do. Mm. And those gaps allow... You know, allow a guy to run through Tompkins to just stroll through that. That gap allows Jack Morgan to stroll through that. Those little gaps, yeah. those spaces in between consciousness as well as space yeah, yeah. are the big thing. And I don't think that we can dismiss the idea that Eddie made it too much about himself to where there was not the space within which to grow to be the John Eels, to be the Nick Farr Jones, the people who can. You know, blossom and speak clearly. It just all seemed edification yeah. again, yeah. and it seemed sour, and, and it seemed like he was taking unnecessary pot shots at media. Who, okay, we all like to bash media sometimes, but why? Why would you do it when it turns you into the guy that everyone booed on every stadium, every big screen when you showed Eddie anywhere in France? There was the whole stadium booed, and um, yeah. I think I think there's a psychology here in the rap. Um, if, if if Hamish is the one doing um, the review, then it's already dead on arrival. It's stupid. It's flawed. It's uh, it's like the RFU's review of Eddie, which which said um, they weren't fit enough, and he needed you know COVID was an excuse, and then he ended up having the most dire seasons for England. They've got to have a proper review where they hold him to the feet of the fire and say you presented a plan to win this World Cup. Then you changed it two weeks before the World Cup to say it's not about the twenty seven. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It'll be, it'll be really interesting. Um, it's always been interesting that the review after the Spring Tour last year was never really not a, not that it, not that it wasn't not that it just wasn't made public has never even really been referred to. And I suppose as soon as they sacked Dave Rennie, it was almost null and void. But I'd be curious to know if what le what the recommendations were in that 2022 review and yes. how many of them Eddie Jones knew about and, and whether there's been a case of repeating the same mistakes. What happens now is going to be really, really crucial after this. It is going to be fascinating to see how it plays out and, and what the fallout is, who is actually held responsible for it and why. And, and, it will be fascinating to see all of that because if we do see all of that, it will mean that the review details have actually been re referred to publicly, if not made public itself. And that is going to be the interesting thing over the next few months. What's really interesting now is that is, is that regardless of what happens in the Wallabies game this weekend uh, against Portugal, 
it'll be another week before they actually find out whether they're in or out. Now, I think they know their fate, but they won't actually know that for potentially another two weeks. Yeah. And that's got to be like the cruelest of paper cuts, hasn't Painful it? Painful slow walk, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, a lot, a lot and tell time, me. A lot of time for Zooms to Japan, though, um, during that. Yeah, time. well, yeah, be well. Them and, and then if it's, if it's a Teams instead of a Zooms, then Eddie can deny that it was a Zoom with Japan, you know? No, no, I don't know what you're talking yeah. about. It was a yeah. Microsoft Teams. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, um, it was it was actually a WhatsApp so chat. I'll say this: you know, we were at an event in Lyon with some you know hundred or so Wallaby fi fans. Was, deep, deep, yeah, deep. They were deeply in love with the game in Australia. They were deeply in love with the idea, and I kept coming back to these things, which is why I, I, I'm the amateur psychologist today. I felt like all along that Hamish, and uh, and, and and I'll just say this. I don't know how many sources you got to have for something to be true, but I think I have about 57 sources to say that he is the arsehole's arsehole and that he doesn't have any he doesn't have any compunction about hiding that in real life. But no one will go on the record because they're scared of it, of saying it. So I'm just going to say it. It seems to me I've got 57 sources saying the same thing, and not one person ever says that he's a great guy. The just the respect between the governance of the game. And the, and the lack of respect between Hamish and the people who actually fund the game, go to the game, love the game, people the game, the lack of respect between uh, Eddie and the you know, hardworking journalists who are going around the world, you know, sleeping uh, probably pretty hard, not actually on big expense accounts, uh, the that lack of respect by saying, we're not good enough to, to win the weakest draw in ages, so I'm going to stuff it up by putting a bunch of people in and almost wreck their confidence. Those things, they sound like projection to me. They sound like insecurity yeah. to me. They sound like power mongering instead of I love you. I want to do right for you. You can trust me. I'm honest, you know, like a John Eels type. Uh, you know, where are those guys in Australia going to stand up and say, this is not who we are. We're mm. not the ones that other people don't like. Australians are generally likable people. Other teams, other fandoms like to support them. They're a good second team, you know, for people. They're yeah. fun to watch. Uh, why have we got to the point where we have the two most unlikable fellows in charge and the states are scorned, the clubs are pissed on, and there's this idea that uh, we don't owe you anything. Of course you owe us something. You owe an explanation. You mm -hmm. owe, stand up like a man and say, I fucked it up. I stuffed it up. Here's why. And, uh, and don't just keep saying hollow apologies. Literally say, I made a mistake. My personality feud with yeah. Quade Cooper got the best of me. I didn't like the way Michael Hooper talked back to me in practice. I made the wrong move there. I, I really need to go away and have some self-reflection and go sit yeah. in a, you know hot water up in Hokkaido somewhere and breathe. Because it seemed like from the beginning it was a psychodrama. It seemed like uh, Eddie was – on our part, he was saying, I'm going to go hard, 16-meter, 100-meter sprint. We're going to win this thing. and I'm going to have continuity. Well, we jumped from Tom Wright to Andrew Kellaway. We dropped Andrew Kellaway, and then we stuck in Ben Donaldson. And ben, ben Donaldson never felt comfortable, looked comfortable in the hot moments when it really mattered. Because why would he? And um, no, I, I think I think there's a lot here to unpack. And, and I, what I would want is all the people in Australian rugby to actually come with a loud voice, a clear voice, and say, "Don't disrespect us anymore." We do have lines coming up. We do have. Um, the next World Cup. There's a lot to play for here. Let's stop uh, this circular firing squad. Yeah, yeah, and and in the 
in the face of and in the context of discussions about centralization there's a really interesting couple of months ahead for for, for what australia looks like the roar so mate an interesting fourth weekend of games now ahead of us there's some interesting contests i think starting with uruguay and namibia on thursday friday sees japan and samoa uh, and then saturday we see new zealand italy argentina chile uh which will be two really interesting games i think um uh fiji georgia could be interesting in pool c scotland romania and then australia portugal monday morning australian time south africa tonga as well to follow that um uh, for australian fans don't forget daylight saving this weekend so we get to set our alarm an hour later than we than we have been um there's some there's some interesting contests in amongst that uh yeah it's all about banking point differential yeah. and bonus points bonus and points head-to-heads all of that yeah. even though the yeah. quarterfinals look likely set there's probably four the order is different yeah that still have a mathematical chance and you know so there are teams like scotland that haven't really had a shout yet um and, yeah. you, and you, you wonder what could happen there and then you also look at that pool pool d is just crazy there's uh, so many permutations that it's impossible to put them down yeah. on paper yeah it could be anything in pool d couldn't it it really could and like you say yeah permutations and ordering is going to be all over the place um I only got a couple of little points of, of news this week. There's been that's not to say there hasn't been much going on, but the a couple of things that that stood out. Obviously, Max Jorgensen was ruled out of the Wallaby squad uh, last late last week after uh, an unfortunate ankle break at training uh, last Wednesday late, and then France captain Anton Dupont. Um, I think his campaign's still in a little bit of doubt, but the latest seems to be that he'll look to have a protective mask fitted in the coming days which means that every fr- every french rugby fan is going to be getting around fan of the opera style i can imagine for the next few weeks it's going to be it's going to be really interesting to see to see how it goes um and it's a uh, of toxic masculinity sorry <laughs> toxic mas- masculinity so yeah very very interesting uh, Je- uh johan Dacel and namibian center and captain um fronts uh independent judicial panel in in france on tuesday night i think uh, uh, uh local time so that could well have happened uh by the time you've listened uh you've listened to this pod um but mate i think that is pretty much us wrapping up in terms of rugby world cup coverage um i mean the raw could well be tweaking things now that australia's fate is is somewhat known but what we do know is that between the podcast and the instant reactions and what tony and christy are doing doing uh midweek as well uh and whenever they happen to pop a a podcast in uh we have absolutely got you covered throughout the tournament um harry and i will keep going here middle of each week but having great conversations as we have been doing um and as we have been doing as well our little a little twitter space chats that we've been doing which has been uh i've been a lot of fun uh over the couple of games little extra games that we've done but mate i think that is us done for episode 81 of the raw rugby podcast powered by asics don't forget harry and i are both on the socials and that extends to instagram and threads now as well um have had some great ratings and reviews coming in over the last few weeks and we thank you all for it um we've been getting uh reviews from welsh supporters from uh, from people in great britain as well um and uh and we appreciate it all it's all it's all really really good to see so do 
like, follow, subscribe, and make sure that you get every new episode as soon as it all goes live. But it is the Raw Rugby Podcast with me, Brett McKay, and Harry Jones every week on theraw.com.au, Australia's biggest sporting debate, the home of all your favourite international rugby analysis, opinions, and conversations. It is all thanks to ASICS, the official performance apparel and footwear partner of the Wallabies. Thanks for listening. We're back in your ears Monday morning again, Australian time, with the instant reaction to Australia's last game of the pool stage when they take on Portugal back in San Diego. Shout out to Rob and Julie and Hugh and Gold Digger and his dad. Come play with us.